The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, today's episode is such a good one. I'm talking all things COPD with Ty Kaiser. So we go through everything from diagnosis, exacerbation pharmacotherapy, transitions of care considerations, and everything in between. You know you have a guest who's one of the experts in their field based on the number of times you cite their work within the episode, their high-quality work. Now, I would never say that, but but I am, just for the record here. Now, a quick reminder, voting is live for the 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards, so a link to the ballot will be in the episode description as well as all over social media at Pharmacy to Dose, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and the website PharmacyToDose.com. Now let's breathe easy because my talk with Ty Kaiser on COPD starts right now. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And very lucky to be joined by a leader in clinical research, academia, critical care pharmacotherapy in general, Ty Kaiser. Uh, now, Ty is a professor and vice chair in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and a clinical pharmacy specialist in the medical intensive care unit at the University of Colorado Hospital. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Ty Kaiser. And as we are recording this, it's literally after his birthday. And so that is how, that is his dedication and love to the pharmacy community. He's coming the day after his birthday to record this. Ty, we appreciate you. How are you doing today? Doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. So let the listeners know on Ty Kaiser's birthday, what dessert are we choosing when you're at the restaurant? Is it, is it cake, pie, ice cream? Are we going off the board? What's your, what's your move? No, I'm a, I'm a standard cake guy. Cake and ice cream. Got to be chocolate of some sort, and if you can get to a cold stone or something where they do cake and ice cream together, that's my jam. There we go. All right, chocolate is king. That's exactly right. Yeah the the only the only take I definitely like cake. 
Ice cream cake would have also been an acceptable answer, but all others would have been unacceptable. I, I agree. So the, the classics definitely hang true today. Um, well, we're, what an awesome episode that we're kind of talking about um, COPD. And as we go into COPD itself, and we're talking about kind of these updated 2023 gold or the, we'll call it the gold, but it's the global initiative for chronic obstructive lung disease or the gold report. Is there a better set of guidelines for a common disease state? I mean, it's updated annually. They have information and presentation slides. There's literally pocket guides. It's easy to read and follow. Like, it's got to be the best, right? It's one of the best. Definitely something that you can lean heavily on. I think it's user-friendly and, you know, plenty of useful figures and algorithms to help you through most situations you deal with with COPD patients. And like you said, these guys are constantly updating the material, which keeps us um, in tune with the most the most primary evidence that we have available to us at the time. Yeah, they first released it in 2001, and the, the statement is they it's not intended to be a textbook, but summarize the current state of the field. So they kind of give kind of annual updates, and we'll get into some of the differences this year, definitely. Um, and let's kind of dive right in, right? So the most recent update, the 2023 Gold Report, they recommend a new COPD definition as well as a new classification, right? So generally speaking, what changed and then did the authors kind of let us know kind of why we why we transitioned? Yeah, so the new definition really gets that um, COPD is a heterogeneous lung condition. So they talk about the usual respiratory symptoms that we know of, um, dyspnea, cough, sputum production. They talk about the abnormalities of the airways, you know, bronchitis or alveoli, um, and the progressive airflow obstruction has always been there, but they really want it to be more inclusive with COPD now and focus in on not only the usual cigarette causes of COPD, but the other things we see, the um, smoke, air pollution, you know, different exposures in the community. And the criteria that they added really start to find patients that are at risk of developing COPD. And this has been done in other diseases like diabetes, where we talk about pre-diabetes and other things. So their goal is to capture patients that may not yet present with airflow obstruction, but have some sort of structural lung lesions or disease, you know, such as emphysema, respiratory symptoms, or other abnormalities um, that cause low normal FEV1 or gas trapping. Um, and they label these patients now as pre-COPD or preserved ratio impaired spirometry. So it's really kind of cool. It's a, it's a big change compared to the last 20 years. And I think it's a more encompassing definition and gives us a better chance of identifying patients that truly have COPD. Yeah, and the, I, the, the guidelines kind of talk about the new opportunities and um, if we're able to possibly identify these things like targets for prevention, early diagnosis, and better treatment, right, to maybe halt progression and things, right, might become an option in future things as we start to identify um, those non-tobacco risk factors. Like you said, that's kind of the biggest, one of the biggest things they talk about there. Um, so, 
talking about the critically ill, right? So, you know, we could have a COPD probably 10 hour series talking about everything, but let's kind of focus on the COPD exacerbation side of things here. And let's, let's kind of start with a, a presentation that our ED pharmacists are probably familiar with, right? A patient presents with an acute exacerbation of COPD. So, Paint the picture of what this patient kind of looks like when they come in. What are some classic signs and symptoms that we kind of expect to see? Yeah, so the typical presentation is a combination of signs and symptoms that look like a combination of chronic bronchitis, um, emphysema, reactive airway disease. But the hallmarks are cough, worsening dyspnea, um, exercise intolerance, difficulty doing normal daily activities, and plus or minus sputum production, increased purulence. In worst case scenario, they have um, altered mental status, um, cyanotic uh, effects, and you will see them um, struggling very difficultly to breathe and, you know, almost in a tripoding state as they try to find an, a body position that allows them to exchange air more, more easily. I'm glad you mentioned that, that tripod patient scenario, right? They're in the chair and they're hunched over or they're on the, the, the EMS stretcher coming in. That's kind of one of those classic things I think of one, 100%. Um, so yeah, the, you, you hit on a lot of those kind of cardinal symptoms, right? The dyspnea, cough and sputum and things. So when we see these patients, right, and, and they're coming in, what's our ultimate goal when we're treating a COPD exacerbation? Because I ask this because, right, in, the heart, in heart failure and in previous episodes we've talked about, you can work to prevent exacerbations, right, because that can further disease progression. So is this the same concept in COPD or are we, are we trying to have a different target? Well, I think ultimately the goal, like you said, is to prevent the long-term sequelae associated with these exacerbations. So the exacerbations take the patients down a level in their ability and the progression in their disease such that their quality of life is reduced. They're more likely to have future exacerbations. They may not return their lung function as they continue to have exacerbations. Um, so long-term, yes, very similar to um, heart failure. You know, for ICU um, practitioners, we focus a lot on the immediate objectives, which is to make sure that we have adequate oxygen or oxygenation. Um, we try to improve the blood pH, reverse the obstruction that's occurring, and ultimately treat any cause. So there's a lot of triggers to this with um, exacerbations, you know, you've got viral and bacterial infections, which account for the majority of it, but there's other things such as medication changes, pulmonary embolism, hypoxia, even the weather is, you know, here in the West, we see a lot of wildfires and other things that um, put, push patients over the edge. So there's both immediate um, things that we need to do because we know that if they progress to needing mechanical ventilation, for other things, their length of stay is increased, their time in the ICU, and their risk of death goes up. But you're exactly right. Long term, these exacerbations further progress the disease. They're more likely to come into the hospital more frequently, and um, they have a major decline in the quality of life. 
and just so the listeners are on the same page as us, when you look into the guidelines and see the exacerbation classification, if you're seeing them in the hospital, right, that's classified as severe. So they don't need to go to an ICU for things like mechanical ventilation or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation to be considered severe. You know, you mentioned environmental triggers like wildfires, uh, and unfortunately, those of us east of the Mississippi are learning about this firsthand as well. So you mentioned oxygenation targets earlier. So typically we won't or shouldn't routinely see COPD patients with a 98 to 100% reading on that pulse oximeter. So what is the goal oxygen range in patients with COPD? Yeah, it's actually a great point and somewhat counterintuitive when you think at it just at the surface level. But the target oxygen saturation are usually somewhere only between 88 and 92% in people, particularly with those with an COPD exacerbation. And the reason for this is if you look at the medical literature, the excessive oxygen is actually harmful in patients with COPD, in part probably due to the hypercapnia. But these patients have diseased lungs. Their bodies have you know, figured out a way to allocate perfusion to the good parts of their lungs and away from the parts that don't. And when you start administering supplemental oxygen to these patients, it messes up that balance that they have. So you see diseased lungs seeing increased oxygen and taking perfusion away from the better parts of the functioning lung. Now, many times you'll hear this called like shunting or dead space ventilation, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually you end up with higher levels of um, carbon dioxide. Um, and there's probably a few other things as well that giving too much oxygen um, does with regards to the, the impact. But overall, they've tried doing various studies pushing the oxygen saturation up to 94%, for example, or higher. And usually those patients actually do worse. So when I think of the treatment of acute COPD exacerbations, I think of the big three. Uh, the big three focusing on right, bronchodilators, corticosteroids, and antibiotics. So let's treat those three like a frog, and we're in middle school science, and we're going to dissect these one by one. And uh, the first one I want to focus on uh, are bronchodilators, and bronchodilators meaning like albuterol, for example, albuterol inhalers, albuterol nebulizers. And I understand this is probably the most loaded question in the episode, but do we know what the right bronchodilator dose is for COPD exacerbations? Well, I can be honest and say that I don't. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think we have a great randomized study evaluating uh, different doses of, of beta agonists in COPD exacerbations. I mean, at best, we have some evidence looking at intermittent inhaler or nebulizer use, and there doesn't seem to be any difference in whether you use. Um, either technique or, in fact, the continuous infusion nebulizers. I think with regards to the bronchodilator, particularly the beta agonist, um, you're giving as, as much as necessary to try to pop open the airways. And, and when I say that, as much as necessary and as much as tolerated um, a lot of times. And, you know, the guidelines will say giving, you know, doses every hour. But with regards to you know, most emergency departments, they are stacking the doses on top of, of each other. Like you said, uh, up to like four or five, six 
um, puffs at a time, repeatedly every few minutes, every 15 minutes, um, to get these patients um, treated. And many times it's until they start shaking or their heart rate is is going through the roof and they have symptoms that are not tolerable. But I'm guessing if you if you haven't been able to breathe for a certain period of time, I'm gonna guess a little they're gonna be fine with a little bit of tremor if that if that's able to to open up their their airway. Um, so basically, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and and so it sounds like what you're saying is bronchodilators are important, but it's basically we we titrate or give to effect more or less. But the effect isn't anything; it's subjective, not objective. Yeah, subjective, not objective. I mean, you're if you look at the, the literature and the systematic reviews of short-acting bronchodilators, you know, they do look at FEV1 differences between MDIs and NEBs, for example. But with regards to patient response, it's really very much a clinical um, scenario in the emergency department. Um, and you, you give it um, until the patient starts to look like they're improving and no longer gasping for, for air and struggling to breathe. So let's transition now to corticosteroids and looking at those guidelines, and they've recommended this for a long time, the 40 milligrams oral prednisone for the treatment of a COPD exacerbation. Now, all of us, especially those of us who practice in the ICU, we know in these life-threatening exacerbations, right, those who require mechanical ventilation or that continuous non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, that frequently we use much higher corticosteroid doses, right? Specifically, you know, it could be IV methylprednisolone commonly used, but could be others as well. Now, how high is too high? At what point do the adverse effects from those corticosteroids start to outweigh the anti-inflammatory benefits that we're hoping to see with these agents? Yeah, and, you know, this is obviously going to be a personal opinion. We haven't done, you know, incremental dosing evaluations of of steroids, but I think above 240 milligrams a day of methylprednisolone is too high. And I think that we, we did a large database study back in 2014, published in the Blue Journal, and we looked at the wide variety of dosing that people have been using across the country um, to treat COPD exacerbation. And we could not find any true efficacy benefit at all above 240 milligrams a day, only increased adverse effects such as hyperglycemia and infections, including fungal infections, once you go above that dose. And interestingly, when I when we went to present that data at the ATS meeting, um, we, we talked to some of the authors of that original VA cooperative study, which was the big mm-hmm. 1999 New England Journal of Medicine study, and they used 125 milligrams of methylprednisolone four times a day. And people have repeated that for years. And we asked them, well, how did you choose that dose? And they're like, well, we didn't want to do something that people said would be too low. And we didn't get efficacy of steroids because we didn't give enough. So there wasn't a whole lot of scientific evidence surrounding that dose. It was more like, we're going to give more than we think we would ever need to give, such that no one will say that we, we gave too little. And that's why it didn't work. 
<laughs> that that's so, the most again, critical care mindset. That's the most critical care answer of all time. I'm going to do so high no one will ever be able to say I underdosed them. I'm sorry for interrupting you. That's just so what a what a funny anecdote. Yeah, and I mean, we're critical care people, right? So it's people are sick. They're doing really poorly in front of you and we like instant gratification. A lot of times that's being aggressive to see a response. Um, but I think if you, if you look at our data, which in this observational data, I, I think there clearly are cut points where we don't see any, any more benefit. And I think the dose is probably much, much less than 240. We surveyed clinicians across the country um, that are either part of the pedal or the old um, U.S. critical care injury trials group. And most, most of the physicians in that group thought that around 120 milligrams a day of methylprednisolone was probably the highest that, that you should be using. And many of them felt comfortable down to 40 milligrams. Um, we've done a little bit of translational research looking at response to steroids and only published in the abstract form so far, but it's, it's kind of interesting. We call it the negative study because we have not been able to find any real difference in response to steroids, whether you have stable COPD, COPD, an exacerbation, and then just the hospital medical ward, or COPD with an exacerbation that's super severe and you end up in the ICU, um, which is kind of counterintuitive to what we think, right? We think, Oh, there's got to be more information. There's got to be more going on. And it doesn't seem that you get a whole lot more bang for your buck going with these big whopping doses of steroids. And, you know, somewhere in the 40 milligram, 40 to 60 milligram up to a mg per kg, probably as far as you need to go. The only good study that I'm aware of um, in the ICU was done by Aaliyah and colleagues. It was about 2011. And they gave they started with two mix per kg and then titrated down. Um, and they saw some benefits in mechanical ventilation days, ICU stay, and, and non-invasive failure. Um, but there really, believe it or not, isn't a whole lot of information to guide us on steroid dose in the ICU. Most of the studies, like the REDUCE trial, look at transfer to the ICU or need for mechanical ventilation as the outcome. So they're not necessarily enrolling a lot of the patients that we see every day. Now, Ty mentioned his steroid study in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, a.k.a. the Blue Journal. Uh, that's a must-read for all in critical care. One of the best studies, even with you know some of the limitations that, that you mentioned, it's definitely some of the best data we have. Um, and for listeners, this will 100% be in the reference list. So we talked about the fact methylprednisolone doses could range anywhere from 40 milligrams to 240 milligrams. Like what a crazy range. So once we stray from that guideline recommended five-day 40 milligram oral prednisone course, are we dosing steroids based on vibes exclusively? Because there's a, a really large variation in doses and frequency that we see in practice. Oh yeah, I call I call steroid dosing the art of medicine. I, I think it's completely vibe for the most part. Um, it's it's tough. It's you think that 
everyone's slightly different size. Pharmacokinetics should be different. But truly, we don't know what the, the best dose is for, for most patients. So we do see a large variation. And, you know, when you think about some of these patients, they may be coming in from steroids at baseline. So it's, it's definitely something that we think about. We think they need some steroids, but ultimately the least amount possible um, that is effective is ultimately the vibe goal here. So a lot of times the, the, the patient with the COPD exacerbation, they might have other respiratory Ill, acute illnesses occurring at the same time, right? Example, you know, viral or bacterial pneumonia, you know, can be that um, trigger to cause the exacerbation of COPD, for example. And pneumonia, right, it's kind of gaining some traction with using steroids, right? We have the Cape Cod trial and things. So how do we, how do we dose steroids when they are kind of concomitant disease states, um, or we at least suspect that they're happening at the same time? Is it do, do we approach it differently? Well, I think we do. I think it, it depends on what is causing the COPD exacerbation. You know, the Cape Cod study is very reassuring, as you said. I think that that, you know, 200 milligrams a day of hydrocortisone for about four to eight days, I think um, that's pretty similar to about 40 a day of methylpred or a little more of prednisone for five days that we use in our COPD exacerbation. So if it is a traditional pneumonia, community-acquired pneumonia that's causing the exacerbation, then that one to me is a little easier because the doses are, are fairly similar overall. And I don't think it probably makes a huge difference whether you're using hydrocortisone or prednisone or methylprednisone. I think for me, a lot of times it comes down to what is the trigger? So if it's COVID, for example, steroids we think are fairly beneficial and we know about what dose of dexamethasone to use for that. And it's probably a sufficient dose for COPD exacerbations too. But you may have patients with, say, influenza where the data is a little tougher and more mixed. So if steroids may or may not be beneficial or may even be harmful in certain um, triggers of COPD. In those situations, I get a little more um, worried and try to figure out, you know, what what amount of steroid or whether even to give steroids is the is the right thing to do, and and part of that is because COPD is well we talked about the definition and it's a heterogeneous disease. There's clearly a phenotype of COPD where steroids are beneficial, and there's going to be a lot of COPD patients where steroids are not going to make a huge change. And I think we're starting to gain more and more insight into that as we start to see, you know, things like eosinophils pop up on a lot of the clinical trials and other markers of inflammation that, that we'll talk about in a bit. But it's, there's definitely different phenotypes and responsiveness to steroids. But I think in, for the most part, outside of some of your pulmonary fibrosis or other ILDs where you may be taking more aggressive strategies, the, the dosing of steroids is at least close enough where you're not having to go too far out of the normal realm of acute exacerbation of COPD and using just wild and crazy um, types of uh, dosing and approaches. So closing out the trilogy, uh, let's talk about the antibiotics, right, in the big three. So when patients are admitted, 
and I think you could say in general, but especially applies to patients that are admitted to the ICU with an acute exacerbation of COPD, they almost always are receiving a macrolide antibiotic in addition to their other therapies. So what is the role of the macrolide antibiotic? How does this translate into patient outcomes? Like, are we doing this just because we've always done it? Yeah, I think macrolide antibiotics we use very similar to the pleiotrophic effects of uh, statins and other things and other conditions, right? I think of them very, very similarly. So, yes, they have antimicrobial properties, but, you know, macrolides aren't necessarily the broadest spectrum and and killing the majority of of bugs that cause pneumonias and other things in our patients anymore. Um, So we're using it for its anti-inflammatory effects for the most part. And when it comes to evidence, you know, we've, We've done a, a little bit of work here, again, using some database studies, looking at macrolides versus other antibiotics in acute exacerbations of COPD. And if you, if you look at their effects, they do have some benefits with regards to 30-day hospital readmissions, the number of exacerbations that you have in a given year, the time it takes to get to the next exacerbation. So beyond the antimicrobial benefits, the macrolide antibiotics seem to have some true uh, effect on the COPD disease. And, you know, we can go outside the ICU and talk about chronic use of macrolides and COPD. As you get to, you know, two, more than two exacerbations in a year, um, chronic macrolide use beyond and above their, their uh, maintenance therapies seem to have some benefits. And that likely is undue to its true antimicrobial effect, but instead more of its off-target or anti-inflammatory effect. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the last pharmacologic adjunct or add-on therapy that I think of for acute exacerbations of COPD is our carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. So is there any utility in the routine use of acetazolamide in these patients who typically present with acute on chronic acid-base abnormalities? I'll probably be unpopular with this, um, but I'm going to say no. Uh, the, you know, our pulmonologists, they love it. It, it fixes numbers. There's yeah. no doubt that it adjusts the serum bicarb level. It probably re- it makes your blood gases look better. It reduces the days you have metabolic alkalosis. I lean on a study from JAMA in 2016. Um, enrolled about 400 patients and they looked at giving acetazolamide versus placebo. And they could find no differences in the amount of or duration of mechanical ventilation um, or any impact that it had on the outcomes in these patients other than fixing the numbers. Um, so, and I mean, in theory, it fixes the carbon dioxide. Maybe that changes 
the respiratory drive and and makes you feel better. But ultimately, I don't think there's clear data that giving acetazolamide routinely has a major impact in our in our patient population. And that that uh, Diabolo study that you referenced, right? That's randomized, multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled. It's some of the highest quality data that we have, especially in this patient population. So um, that's the study that I referenced too, but you're right. Um, It certainly can make your numbers um, look better. That mechanism of action, um, we certainly um, have data to say that that's exactly how it works. Um, So you had mentioned when we were talking about exacerbations, identification, recognition, um, you know, talking about like eosinophils and things. So when these, when we're getting like our standard labs on these patients, you know, obviously we're getting like CMP, CBCs, et cetera. Are there other specific labs that should get drawn or paid attention to in these patients? Yeah, I think it depends on your institution and how much you love certain labs such as procalcitonin or CRP. You know, I think if you look at, Procalcitonin, many institutions try to use that to determine if the exacerbation is being caused by a bacterial versus a non-bacterial um, and cause. And can that save you antibiotic days if you use it? I think my read of the data is that procalcitonin has pretty mixed results um, and could lead you astray sometimes in these patients. Um, the CRP, I think, is a, a reasonable inflammatory marker to use as well as eosinophils. Eosinophils are probably, if you read through the guidelines, what they lean on the most to really find kind of that inflammatory process that might respond either chronically to anti-inflammatory or inhaled corticosteroids or acutely to to steroids. Um, And again, trying to identify that phenotype. So those are three things you'll read about in the, the guidelines. I think right now, prime time, eosinophils is probably the closest we have to being super useful. The others are are not quite ready for routine use. Well, it certainly sounds like more to come on at least some of those labs and their specific role uh, or utility here, but I'm sure we'll start to see these ordered more if they aren't, you know, happy, if that isn't happening already. Uh, so great insight uh, there. Now, one of the biggest challenges for us in acute care, right, those working in the ED and ICU is helping ensure patients, especially patients with COPD, that they're on the right maintenance medication, right? We know it's so important, but I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that I've had access to outpatient spirometry readings or, you know, seeing someone's FEV1 to FEVC ratio. Um, so what can we do for, for when they're inpatient to help ensure they're receiving the correct pharmacotherapy, knowing, right, knowing how expensive these inhalers are. So we don't want to just be prescribing these um, and possibly, right, have them pay, you know, a large copay for an unnecessary medication. Yeah, I agree. This is a tough situation. We're placed in every day as the hospital pharmacist, particularly in the ICU, um, where we don't have the information we need to apply the, the guidelines and the recommendations appropriately. And you compound that with our limited formularies in most hospital settings. 
and the restrictions that patients have on what products that they can actually take and afford um, given their insurance restrictions. So I think the lack of data that we need and the availability of that um, in the EHR and in the patient's medical histories, that that creates quite a problem. And we've made some improvements, but the pharmacist is generally left with making assumptions about the patient's FEV1 to FVC ratio based upon the therapy they came in on. So really we're assuming that their baseline and their CO level of COPD is accord in accordance with what they were prescribed. And that's a big leap of faith, but um, that's usually where we start. And then we move forward in the algorithm trying to adjust their their therapy moving forward, assuming this is their baseline and, and where they're going. So that's kind of where we're at. And that throws you outside the, the guidelines a little bit. But the guidelines now have kind of moved into more of a an A, B, and E model. So it's even more streamlined with regards to what inhalers I need to be using and where do I start and how do I progress in these patients. So this, this typically works, and um, then we can modify um, moving forward from, from there. So when we think about that maintenance long-term therapy, what effect have these been shown on patient-specific outcomes? Like when, when patients are getting that, that optimal therapy, what, what, can we, what can we expect? What has the literature shown us might happen? Well, I think that the main thing these therapies do is halt progression of disease. So they're going to extend the, the quality of life that a patient has um, throughout. I mean, COPD is a disease that doesn't just fix itself and all of a sudden you return to normal life. These, these medications clearly keep the patients at a high functioning level or at the functioning level they started at, prevent progression of disease, prevent all these exacerbations, or I shouldn't say all of them, but many of the exacerbations or the number of exacerbations that happen. Um, the downside many times is that the patients don't actually feel this or know that it's occurring. It's kind of like taking an antihypertensive medication. You don't always get the immediate gratification depending on which inhalers you're taking. So it's part of the conversation you have to have with the patients to let them know that this truly is a maintenance, and this is going to maintain your level of functionality. Um, and clearly there's there's major benefit in many many clinical trials of the LABAs and the LAMAs and their effectiveness so talking about our long-acting agents the LAMA the LABA so we won't go into every specific agent but I guess generally thinking about those as you know their medication classes is there a stepwise approach in those in these 2023 gold report, you know, these guidelines to adding or optimizing maintenance pharmacotherapy in COPD, right? Kind of starting with that step one and ending with our triple therapy. I, I agree. It, it would be pretty complex for us to go deep into that, but I think the guidelines do a good job. There's uh, two figures that I lean on heavily in the guidelines, figure 4.2 which is on page 115 and figure 4.4, which talks about how to escalate. And those are the ones where I think you can take a stepwise approach. And it works well in our hospitalized patients because it really doesn't 
focus in as much on having to have the spirometry data, but more so like where's the patient now? So it allows an inpatient practitioner to actually think about modifying maintenance therapy. Because this may be, this admission to the hospital may be the only time where someone is really truly taking a close look at their COPD and resolving some of the issues and making sure that they're getting on the right home medication. As much as we love to think that everyone's going to go out and get perfect PCP care and follow up, um, that that happens maybe, you know, flip of a coin chance. Yep. Um, so it, it truly is an opportunity for us to improve. And I think, I think these figures and the different maintenance medications uh, listed really help guide us. And then the next thing is just figuring out what will they take? What will they afford? Because if they're not going to take it, then ultimately um, it wasn't a very fruitful effort on our part. Yeah, you can you can prescribe and give the most optimal medications, but if they're not taking it, it's not going to make a difference, right? Um, and you mentioned that figure. That's exactly right. For the learners out there listening, this is definitely, this has got peripheral brain written all over it. It's got a copyrighted watermark. Who cares? You could print that out and still kind of see it on it, but that's a, a really good point there. Um, and as we, you know, you talked about all the different agents and um, hospital formularies and how, you know, they might receive one inpatient, one outpatient things. How important is this discharge counseling and follow-up for patients with COPD? Because, you know, we see it for heart failure. We see it post-MI, maybe even diabetes, but I'm not sure COPD gets the, gets the attention that it probably deserves. Oh, it's, it's, this discharge counseling is hugely important. I can give you an example. Just last week in our cardiothoracic ICU, I was taking care of a patient and he was confused and it was due to a formulary issue at our hospital. When, when patients were coming in, we were using one inhaler that was our formulary inhaler. And when he was leaving the hospital, he was using a different inhaler and he went out taking both of the inhalers and continued to take both. And it just was a sign of a lack of a breakdown in our appropriate um, communication or lack of communication with the patient. So like you said, just like with heart failure, clear communication, execution of appropriate therapies and the clinic follow-ups are important. And a pharmacist, if you look through the literature, I've been looking particularly at the the heart failure, there's a great opportunity for for pharmacists in follow-up COPD, exacerbation patients in the hospital. It's clearly beneficial to have a pharmacist part of the team when they leave the hospital in their very first visit to get the medications right. I think that if people were incorporating pharmacists into these and doing the research, we would clearly show similar or even, you know, more beneficial effects on COPD exacerbations by, by getting this right and getting the discharge counseling or even more importantly, the follow-up um, post-discharge. It's a chronic disease. Yep. People don't do well if they don't if they don't get the if they don't get the therapies correctly. And you know they know the inhalers as the brand name. We know them as the generic. They're always complicated names, right? Like if you're wondering, like how could they do that, right? It's like if we can screw it up in the hospital. Imagine the person who doesn't have a healthcare background trying to sort this out. So it's really easy for those things to happen. So yeah, I think that's a huge a huge area and definitely an opportunity. Um. Now, as we kind of go in, we're kind of closing out 
we're gonna have a new I got a new segment I want to highlight. So as we were going through here, as I was going through the guidelines, this segment is entitled the grossest part of the guidelines. So earmuffs have it's not like super bad, but there's I want to highlight a quote that's just in these guidelines. I thought it's just really, really funny. Sputum production is difficult to evaluate because patients may swallow sputum rather than expectorate it, a habit that is subject to significant cultural and sex variation. I could have done without that. Could have done without that. That feels like it could be a footnote, maybe something that you vaguely reference. All right, got a little levity. Let's bring it, Nick, rope it on back. All right, so when we look at this and we look at kind of the future opportunities, in your opinion, what's the biggest gap in COP literature focusing on like a pharmacotherapy perspective? I think it's clear we don't know enough about the different COPD phenotypes. Um, it's a heterogeneous disease. There are clearly therapies that will benefit some patients but have zero effect on others. So I think we, if you read the guidelines and you look at the inhaler approach, if you look at the steroid approach, it's still a very homogeneous shotgun kind of, these are the therapies we know work. All patients should get these treatments. And it's clear that many patients probably wouldn't need an antibiotic or they may not gain additional benefit from a systemic steroid. Um, so I think that personalized treatment of COPD, personalized treatment of exacerbations of COPD with regards to, you know, their presenting phenotype and their underlying lung diseases is really kind of the wave of the future when it comes to pharmacotherapy. And I think if we can get that figured out, which is it's a tough thing to do, right? We want to mm-hmm. treat all patients similarly. We want to use guidelines to treat all patients a certain way. We create pathways that basically funnel people through the same exact pathway. I think that's what's missing in the COPD literature. There is so much genetic responsibility for COPD. I mean, some people smoke their entire lives and don't get COPD. They usually get heart disease. Yep. But others may not smoke at all and um, have, you know, partial alpha one antitrypsin deficiency or other things that if we could just figure those things out, um, we would probably maximize the pharmacotherapy benefit and minimize the harm we cause with a kind of a shotgun approach. Yeah, uh, it feels like the future is taking the phenotypes from the research kind of bench to the clinical bedside and being able to use those kind of in practice and seeing how that changes things. So um, the future, you know, certainly it might it might take some time, but certainly feels like there could be some good things coming. Um, I mean, this was Tyler, this was a master class talking through this stuff. If you had to if you had to boil down some of your some of your biggest headlines or things that you want people to remember. What do you think, what, what would a couple of those things be? Well, you know, I'm always going to talk about steroids. So <laughs> one, of my, one of my take-homes would be use the lowest steroid dose possible for the shortest duration of time possible. Um, I, think, I think that's going to maximize your outcomes when it comes to using systemic um, corticosteroids. Um, I think that it's clear that using therapies that reduce recurrent exacerbations leads to improved quality of life. It reduces cost and slows disease progression. So I think the take-home point we came up with today was, yes, our responsibility in the hospital and the ICU is making sure that 
we're giving them the acute therapies to treat the condition now, but the things that we do, the decisions that we make ultimately um, impact their lives way down the road in this disease. And I think the last thing that we see in these guidelines that's parked on this, this time is there's a variety of causes of COPD. So we as the pharmacotherapy specialists, we need to be thoughtful about our use of pharmacotherapy and the, the options that we as the clinical pharmacists choose um, are going to have a big impact and likely improve outcomes and reduce the adverse effects we're seeing. So reach out to Ty at Ty Kaiser. Let him know what what a what an awesome review and kind of going into details on on things this was. Reach out to me at Pharmacy to Dose. Uh, Ty, that was awesome. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Um, appreciate it greatly. Ah, oh, thanks. This was fun. I really appreciate talking to you, and I I'm so glad to get the invite. So you're doing great work. Always fun to listen to these. Learning a lot. Oh, those are kind words. I appreciate it so much. Another huge thanks to uh, Ty Kaiser for joining me today. Uh, That was awesome. So remember, reach out to him at Ty Kaiser. Um, Reference list with the articles we discussed today. They'll, of course, be in the podcast episode description as well as the website, pharmacytodose.com. Another reminder, 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards. Get that ballot. Make sure you vote. Voting ends Friday, July 21st at midnight Eastern. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.